You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Olcott, and I'm your host for the show. This week, we're talking to Sir David Omond. He is a real-life spy. He was the director of GCHQ, one of the intelligence services in the UK government in 1996-97, and also the permanent secretary in the Home Office. So basically the most senior-ranked civil servant uh, government official between 1997 and 2001. Glittering career in the UK civil service, which we talk about, um, and the word service, I think, is a really important one as part, you know, when we talk about civil service uh, and we talk about the sense of duty that people have when they're working in the civil service, which I think is, um, uh, well, as we talk about something that may have been lost a little bit. So we talk about his getting a knighthood, uh, double knighthood, and uh, the lifestyle of someone in intelligence services and also his book, How Spies Think, which if you are going to buy his book, make sure you buy the hardcover with the jacket sleeve around it. I'm not going to say any more than that. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's uh, so beautifully designed. It really is worth it just for just for the design. It's, it's gorgeous. Before we start with the episode, I have two things I want to talk to you about. The first is we're doing a thing in January called The Kindness Happening. If you caught last week's podcast, I was talking to Christina Kisley, all about how kindness is a really underrated leadership trait and kindness is really good for productivity. And continuing that theme, we're launching this thing called The Kindness Happening. It starts on the 14th of January. If you go to eventbrite.co.uk or eventbrite.com and just type in The Kindness Happening, then you will get to the page. And if you want to, if you're a bit lazy, you can just go to getbeyondbusy.com. Just look in the show notes and that will take you straight there. Uh, so join us for the kindness happening. It's four Thursday evenings, UK time on Zoom with myself, Christina Kisley, some special guests and about 35 other people. So tickets are very limited. There's only 40 and we're only going to do this once. So if you are keen to be part of it, then go to eventbrite.com or .co.uk or go to getbeyondbusy.com and check out the kindness happening. Use the code NINJA15, so the word NINJA, and then just 15, and that will give you a promo code for 15% off as well. The other thing I want to just mention is Colette Hennigan and myself are releasing our book, How to Have the Energy. It comes out on the 7th of January, 2021. So currently it's in that pre-order phase. So I'm going to just make a little plea which is if you have liked all the Beyond Busy content that I've been putting out this year, not just all the podcast episodes themselves, but we've been putting out lots of little excerpts and little quotes on our social media, particularly on Instagram at Graham Alcott. And uh, all of that is just, it's a labor of love. It's a huge um, operation, really. There's actually three of us working on the podcast now. And um, yeah, it, we, we do it primarily as a labor of love um, and obviously also as a developing a platform so that we can um, share these kind of things with you. But we would really love it. It would really help us if you can go and pre-order how to have the energy. And that will really just help us to justify our decision to put so much time and resource into this podcast, basically. So we don't have sponsors on it. We It's only ever sponsored by Think Productive, by ourselves. And uh, we don't want to have adverts and all that stuff. We don't want to spoil it. 
Um, but every now and again, we would love to know that it does pay a little bit back. So um, the book's only about six quid or seven quid or something, but you'd be doing us a huge favor because we're in this Amazon pre-order phase. And if we get uh, enough pre-orders on Amazon, well, you know how this works, algorithms and stuff. So go to Amazon, uh, go and search for how to have the energy. We'll also put the link obviously in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. Please go and buy a book or two or three or five, buy them for your team. Honestly, I think the stuff that's in How to Have the Energy, I mean, it really helped change my life um, by not really even changing my diet that fundamentally, but I just have so much more energy for the work that I do. And uh, we've distilled all of it into a book. It's the price of a couple of coffees. So head over to Amazon, uh, buy a few of them, pass them around and Honestly, it will really help people. So uh, go and check out How to Have the Energy. I'm really proud of it and really hoping that we get a, a good start to the book launch in January 2021. So that's How to Have the Energy. And now it's time to get into this episode. So I'm with Sir David Omond. He is the author of How Spies Think. He is uh, a former director of GCHQ, a permanent secretary of the Home Office. Uh, he's taught at the Open University. He, you know, really just has had an incredible career and was fascinating to talk to. We didn't quite get round to some stuff at the end that I wanted to ask him about because he got pulled away to go and do something else. So I'm just going to uh, do a little bit of a wrap up at the end of the podcast as well. But let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Sir David Omond. I'm with Professor Sir David Omond. How are you doing? Very good. Very good this afternoon. And you were saying just before we hit record that um, you're not used to being um, in talking in, in public about your work. Um, so that's quite an interesting place to start. That's right. If you have a full career, if you have a full career in the security and intelligence and defense world as a civil servant, um, you are expected to keep your head down and, and it's for the politicians to do the speaking. And I agree with that. But I've been out of the... Uh, business now for some many years and I've been teaching and writing and I've got a visiting professorship at King's College. So I think it's perfectly fair now for me to come and talk about the book I've just written. I mean, presumably there are some things that for the rest of your life will be confidential and off limits there. And there, there are probably several grades of that. But is there is there a sort of general sense that the obligation for that on certain things diminishes over time. Um, just interested in how that works. How, how, how do you Mostly, I mean, that? you develop a self-censoring angel that sits on your shoulder and whispers in your ear when you've been enticed into saying more than you should. But the British community is now generally, a, it's much more open than it used to be. We acknowledge the existence of intelligence agencies the names of the heads of those agencies are public knowledge and occasionally they appear on the media themselves. The details of their operations uh, remain secret. And in certainly in the case of human intelligence, it's secret forever. They really don't right. want yeah. that coming out. In other areas of intelligence sort of assessments, which are made by the Joint Intelligence Committee and so on, with the passage of time, those get released to the National Archives down at Kew, and you can go down there. It's free. You can go down, and you can read your way through what did the Joint Intelligence Committee think about uh, 
the early part of the Cold War, and it's it's all there. That's also one of my favourite. I don't watch a lot of news, but one of my favourite news stories of the year is always the story on about January the first or second, which is where they release another year's worth of what were previously classified papers, and we're we're somewhere. Are we like it towards the end of the Thatcher era in the way that's? Uh, Yes, uh, yes. I mean, right formerly, you know, it, it was 30 years. But now, you know, material does tend to get prized out by freedom of information requests, uh, particularly in the United States. So very often a story of some past intelligence success or failure comes out, and it often comes out uh, on the American side because we've been working with them, and they are rather more open. But in the end, if you think about the huge triumph that the Secret Service, MI6, uh, uh, managed with the recruitment of Oleg Gordievsky, you've got the wonderful Ben McIntyre now writing a book, The Spy and the Traitor. It's the best book I know on human agent recruitment. Uh, recounting in some considerable detail. Now, that is Margaret Thatcher's time, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're now in 2020. Yeah. So time has passed and it's less sensitive and his role has been made public. Uh, but to have, for MI6, to have the acting head of the KGB's station in London, acting as their own agent. In my book, I recount that Mark, when Margaret Thatcher first met Gorbachev, the soon-to-be Soviet leader, Gorbachev's brief, large chunks of it were being written by Gordievsky from the London Embassy as the uh, head of the sort of political reporting in the London Embassy. And large parts of Margaret Thatcher's brief were being read, written by Gorda, <laughs> Oleg Gordievsky um, through MI6. So no wonder the visit was a success because she <laughs> knew what he was going to raise. Uh, uh, she'd been tutored in the kind of answers she should give in order to catch his attention. Yeah. And they apparently hit it off. And afterwards she said, this is a man I could do business with. And that was then later transferred to Ronald Reagan, you know, the arch hawk who met Gordievsky after he'd been smuggled out of Russia. He went to the United States. He met Reagan and was responsible for a, a sort of conversion on the part of Reagan towards sort of building bridges with uh, Russia and engaging in some serious arms control. And that quote from Thatcher, this is a man I can do business with, with became a very famous uh, quote. And it feels like, so there's some great topics in your book, which I'd love to come to. And I have to just um, hold this up for the video. So you have to buy David's book in hardcover because honestly, the cover is just so beautiful, just the way it's been done. So you've got these little holes so that uh, when the, what do you call this bit that goes around the outside, the, the leaf, I guess, is it called? When that's, when the, the jacket is wrapped around it, is that, is that right? Is the, the hardcover jacket, it says how spies think, but then when you take the jacket off, it's just seemingly lots of black and white, uh, letters and it's quite difficult to make out the title. So. And that's a very, it's a very good representation of what analysts do, which is you have a lot of fragments of information and can you actually derive, pull out from them some kind of pattern, knowing that you'll never have all of the fragments. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your career before we talk about the book specifically. So um, you've spent time as the director of GCHQ, 
you've been the permanent secretary to the Home Office uh, and spent, you know, really a, a, a glittering career, um, you know, really being part of intelligence services and being present in lots of very big moments in history, I guess, would be um, the the best way to, to summarize it. Um, so coming back to what we were talking about before, so when you were director of GTHQ, that would have been 96, 97. Um, were you a public figure in that role or was, was it not known that you were the director at that point? Had that changed? I was a, a public figure. It was announced by 10 Downing Street that I was going to take the job. Um, I had worked in the Ministry of Defence as the policy director, the Deputy Under Secretary of State for Policy. And in that job, I met a lot of journalists, travelled with them to NATO meetings and so on. So it would have been absurd to try and conceal who I was. So I was the first GCHQ director to have a, a photograph in a public newspaper. Um, but uh, the tradition... Uh, has now really eroded. I think it's a good thing that the British public can actually see and hear the chiefs of the national intelligence agencies and they gave occasional broadcasts or interviews. So you can see the calibre of people that we're employing to run these organisations. Yeah, and so obviously that's one of those jobs that maybe a lot of people have a curiosity about. Um, you know, being in the intelligence services, being a spy, um, there's a certain, you know, mo movie fiction cachet associated with um, that line of work. Can you just describe, like, what does a typical work day look like? What does the office look like? Um, what what can you tell us from the outside that you're able to, to share with us? First, put out of your mind almost everything you read and see <laughs> in films. There are very, very few books that capture <laughs> anything. And, you know, for good reason, because people who write novels, sometimes extremely good novels, uh, they want them to be bought and read and, and to be entertaining. <laughs> uh, just as an example, if you were to read the entire oeuvre of Ian Fleming, all the James Bond books, would you find an occasion in which he brought back secret intelligence? Right. He's not an intelligence officer. He's a kind of licensed hoodlum to go and sort out difficult people um, who are planning usually some absolutely fantastic plot against the, the globe. Um, and he does so very successfully. Um, and he is portrayed as being a member of MI6 and they're building features in James Bond movies. And it's all great fun. And I suspect there's part of that service that is rather proud that uh, they have a global brand. But it's completely misleading because that's – can you imagine trying to uh, uh, recruit uh, someone who will help you pr and provide information for you when they are under conditions of great secrecy uh, in a hard country like – well, like Gordievsky in Russia. And there you are blowing things up, crashing helicopters. <laughs> um, Skiing down the mountain. Turning up in five-star hotels, announcing yourself by your real name. I don't think you would last a, a, a millisecond. But it's entertainment. Um, and the truth is that it's mostly perspiration. It's mostly hard work. 
Um, I have huge admiration for those who do it. Uh, I've been in the community, but, you know, I did not spend my career standing on a street corner or in a seedy hotel somewhere on the other side of the world waiting for a contact to turn up. So I, but I have great admiration for people who do that. Uh, and sometimes they put themselves seriously in harm's way in order to get information which they believe will help better decisions to be made by our government. And these days, it's very much about uh, stopping people who have intention to harm us, you know, the terrorists and the serious criminals and, and, and proliferators. And presumably, you know, whether you're one of the people, you know, hanging around on the street corner or whether you're one of the people, um, you know, sat in one of the offices, Presumably your job is about, because it's about public service and because it's about reacting to events as they happen, that must have an impact on the the work-life balance aspect of things. And, and the culture of it must be that if you need to work a very long week because something big's happening, then that's just an expectation. So is that something that you were aware of going into um, that line of work? Did you think this is going to be there's going to be an element of service and kind of personal sacrifice to, you know, to do a good job here. What you say is undoubtedly true of the intelligence services, but it's also true of the civil service more generally. Uh, why does somebody join uh, the civil service out of university, a fast streamer? Uh, they know that the career is going to involve, as you say, you have to do the job. And if that means working the weekend, you work the weekend. If that means coming home late at night. And I spent quite a lot of time in the Ministry of Defence working in private office. So I was working directly for the Secretaries of State for Defence, about five of them. Uh, and, you know, if something blows up, you stay and you make sure the job gets done. Um, and there's a wider sense of public service. Uh, when I left university... Uh, I could have been an academic. Um, I decided I, the idea of public service. This is 1969. And the idea of public service, with, with the emphasis on the service to the public, uh, was very strong amongst my contemporaries. I could have gone into industry, and industry is essential. And I sit on a board today, and I watch how uh, commercial companies operate and generate employment and generate wealth for the country. But there is something very special about public service. And as a nation, woe betide us if we lose that sense, because it's a huge national asset. You need to look uh, around at where countries don't have that tradition to see how difficult it is to administer. The way you talk about it makes it sound like you think we have lost that or lost it to some degree. I think we have. I mean, partly that's inevitable because the uh, service, for various reasons, not least austerity, the service have been squeezed. Uh, where there's sudden needs arise, they, you turn to the private sector and the private sector has a big role in supporting the public sector. I'm not against that. Um, but, you know, in the end, the private sector, it's the bottom line. You have to persuade the investors in the company that you're still a company that's growing, that has a you know, solid balance sheet and, and so on. The uh, motivations in the end of the public service uh, official uh, 
are different. It is uh, now I, that makes it sound rather romantic, but it is a reality. And I found when I was working in the Home Office, for example, which has some very difficult subjects to deal with. Uh, in my day, it was prisons, asylum. Uh, immigration, nationality issues, criminal justice issues. These are hard, hard subjects. And the dedication that the individual officials put in to trying to get the right answer for the public, uh, it's very different from the sort of considerations which you would give in a commercial environment. It feels also like the, the pressure of that over a long period of time must take its toll, particularly if you're, it's a bit, like within Westminster politics, it always feels like, okay, we'll get over this crisis and then it will calm down. And, you know, my experience, I had some experience in the early part of my career working in a charity that led me to spend a lot of time in the home office, actually, not not long after you'd left there. Um, but, you know, working for uh, people like Hazel Blears and Charles Clark and, and the like. And I found myself in the home office on the, on the morning of 7-7. In fact, I was... I left Whitechapel and was annoyed why I couldn't get on a train in, in Allgate uh, and ended up getting a, a taxi there and had no idea what had happened on 7-7. But, what, you know, I got to know a few of the, the civil servants there and it felt like they were constantly getting to what they thought was light at the end of the tunnel and then it turned out that there was another big tunnel ahead of them and they'd have to throw themselves down it for a while longer before they really got a, got a break. Did you ever feel like you got to a point where you really hit a wall and, and in terms of work-life balance and rest and overdoing it, you were, you were, you were struggling? Um, it's certainly the case that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, you, you have to put the hours in when it's necessary. I think good when, when management has it right, then you are very careful to look after people when it, life is not so tough. Mm. And uh, you... Uh, try and give people a break uh, to circulate them around different posts. You know, I think this is well known. If, you have, if you're an official and you're dealing with child abuse, then you really do not want that individual dealing with a subject like that for 12 years. Right. Um, it's got to be long enough to build up the expertise to be able to work effectively with the police and the criminal justice system. But these things can enter the soul. And it's a problem you get with the police service as well, because if you're not careful, your officials are only seeing the dark side of human nature. And that, again, is why it's very useful that they are working closely with the charitable sector and the not-for-profit sector, because you you tend to, that's a sector filled with people who are, on the whole, optimistic, and they're right on the front line, and therefore they are able to uh, provide uh, a reality which sitting in an office, uh, you know, consulting law textbooks uh, may not quite give you. you. You mustn't be too detached. On the other hand, you can't become so emotionally involved that you then have difficulty working for, say, a, on a change of government. Yeah. So, yeah, so a lot, a lot to think about there just in terms of boundaries and um yeah, and the relationship between the self and the work, right? And like how much of your identity is 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 taken up with that too. Um you so you're probably the first person to be on Beyond Busy who has a, a knight grand cross of the Order of Bath. 
um, which was, I guess, is it, I don't know the terminology, but is that the second time you were knighted? So you were knighted first. Yes. And then that's like a promotion of being knighted again. That's right. I got a telegram from the chiefs of staff in the Ministry of Defence when the second award was saying, saying, I think at your age, twice a night is too much. (laughs) Um, And... And what's that like? So the first time you were knighted was was 2000. You'd been Home Office Permanent Secretary for um, a period of time before that. Um, what's that like when you first get that that first telegram and just uh, show us behind the curtain of all that? What, what actually happens? What does it look like? Well, it's a buzz. Um, as, as you were saying, you've been working flat out, you know, clocking ridiculous hours every week, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, uh, and sometimes more. There's always a sense of perpetual crisis. You're rushing to put out another fire, help the Secretary of State and deal with some piece of business. And uh, uh, it's a, a visible recognition of that service. Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting, the response of the staff is very positive because you're not accepting it just for your personal blue eyes. You're accepting it on their behalf as well. And that's a powerful message for the staff. And if you started not to uh, recognize the people who are keeping the system running and the ship of state, you know, occasionally listing to one side or another, but they are keeping it moving through the water, and you have to recognize that because if, if they, if, if you were sending out the wrong kind of message, uh, which is why this is why I object so much when certain figures talk about, you know, demolishing the civil service or uh, criticize. This is not the way you motivate people. Um, the, the British public service, uh, has a lot to learn. It always has had. Um, I came across a wonderful example in a book from the, uh, in fact, published uh, just at the beginning of the Second World War, complaining about the attitudes of the civil servants uh, who are getting in the way of the war effort with their rules and regulations. And, you know, you could have quoted it word for word to some of the complaints you get today. Um, it is apparently true that even in the 1860s, the uh, Her Majesty's Treasury, every letter they sent out was written by hand and copied several times by hand. And this is years and years after the letterpress had been invented. So the Select Committee in the House of Commons uh, summoned in Treasury officials and said, this is ridiculous. Why are you doing this? But they refused to change. And um, life went on until long after the uh, typewriter had been invented. They were still resisting this, this innovation. And the same was true of the dictaphone. So shorthand was just being introduced after the first dictaphones were being introduced. So, you know, this is resistance to innovation. So I've got a lot of sympathy for those. Dominic Cummings is one obvious example who feel very frustrated that sometimes you see innovation and it's not being pushed through. 
the contrary point of view, which you also have to hold in your mind, is if you want to motivate a lot of people to to change their ways, sometimes quite uncomfortably, uh, some of them may lose their jobs, they may have to retrain. If you want to push change through, you've got to have a convincing story as to why it's necessary for them to join in your crusade and um, change their ways. I mean, that takes me back to GCHQ in the late 1990s when you could see the digital revolution approaching us from the west coast of America, all this new technology, and it was going to <coughs> seriously um, put the business, the office out of business. And so people had to change and had to change very dramatically, and they did. But that was because there was a convincing narrative, as the, the rather terrible term people use. You've got to have a narrative. <coughs> and that indeed, they did it. Uh, I used to say to them, your grandparents helped win the Second World War. Your parents helped win the Cold War. Now it's your turn. Are you going to give up or are you prepared to tackle these issues, problems of terrorism and proliferation and serious criminality in the digital age? And they, they did it. And they've, they, it's the one department staffed by civil servants that makes technology sing. Um, you mentioned there the West Coast of America and technology, and I wanted to talk at the end um, a bit more about some of that technology and some of the implications that that has for, you know, small concepts like truth and things like that. So let's come on to that. Um, but let's talk um, before that about the book. Um, so the book, as I mentioned, How Spies Think. And um, the I guess the the, the kind of central part of the book is how can we take some of the the methodologies and the ways that in the intelligence services you have to think about information and often incomplete information and make sense of it and make snap decisions that are going to be the right decisions and you've got this model in there the C's model for analytical thinking so do you want to just talk talk us through the C's model and how that can help somebody um, you know, working in a business or working in an organization and, and helping people to deal with information in that kind of a way. Yes. I mean, I spent many years, including seven years sitting on the Joint Intelligence Committee, watching the analysts and, you know, working with them to try and uh, provide information, reliable information on which decisions could rest. And a central question in the book is, what do you need to know to take a sound decision? And that's a question you should kind of ask yourself, whether it's, you know, am I going to try and change jobs? Am I going to change house and settle down with a different partner? What, what would I need to know to take a rational decision? Of course, there's the other part of the decision, which is emotional. What do I want to achieve by this? Or what do I fear that I want to avoid by taking a decision? Um, and somehow in our brains, you've got to bring both together, uh, which is hard, yeah. genuinely yeah. hard. But if you take the rational part, you know, what do we need to know? Um, I've suggested that there are four outputs that the analytic process, whether it's you thinking in your head or whether it's a bunch of analysts sitting in the cabinet office, um, four outputs – and that together they form C's, S-E-E-S, to make it easy to remember. And the first is situational awareness. 
which answers questions like what, when, and where. Good example at the moment is COVID, COVID-19. What is the infection rate? Where is it taking place? When was the last set of figures uh, derived from? Do we have the information? And with the current arguments, uh, clearly we don't have all the information that we need. And lesson number one uh, is your knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, incomplete, and it's sometimes wrong. And that's true of all of us. You never have complete information. So, but you do need to start, if you can, with some pretty solidly grounded facts as to what is going on. I'm not pretending that's always easy, as we see with the COVID case. It may be very tricky to get those facts um, and to get the public to understand what they mean and what they don't mean. Which brings me to the second part of C's, the E, which is explanation. And this is answering questions that tend to start with why or how. Because facts are dumb. Uh, and the statisticians keep saying correlation is not causation. Uh, just because you see what looks, is it a coincidence? Or is it part of some pattern? Is it coincidence that this is happening or are the Russians behind it? Um, the COVID uh, equivalent would be asking questions about why. Why is it that certain mem- members of the Bain community are worse affected by this disease than the rest of the population? Uh, and that's a why question. Why is that thing? You're trying to explain what is going on. And and in the book, I think you talk about terrorism as an example at one point, and it's like these people are committing this terrorist offence. But then why are they doing that? Kind of understanding the motivations of those those people and kind of getting in their heads is a big part of that as and, well. Right? You know, every defence lawyer in a court case knows about that facts can be interpreted in different ways. So fact the fingerprints of the accused was found on a bottle thrown at the police. Court case results. Was it because he threw the bottle or was it the mob rushing past his house picked the bottle out of his recycling bin? So two different explanations for the same fact. And uh, whether it's intelligence analysts or whether it's the you know general population, you have to be able to explain what's going on. If you've got a good explanation, you can move on to the third stage, which is the second E, which is estimating how events might unfold. So with the data you've got, with the explanation of the model that's going on, how's this going to end up? What's going to happen next? And the COVID example of that is the modeling that takes place where you make some assumptions and then you run the model and then you say, well, if nothing is done, the num- rate of infection is going to double and the hospitals will be full by the 9th of November or something. And there it's really important that you're not just extrapolating from the data, you know, drawing lines on a curve. You've actually got a model of explaining how, you know, does it take place face to face? Is it contact on to the, the 
disease on surfaces? Uh, it, does it take place in schools? You need to be able to explain. And then if you've got that decent explanation, you can then move on and you can start to predict. Um, intelligence analysts hate the word predict because nobody's got a crystal ball and it gives a rather false impression that you're able to predict the future. And you can't, nobody can. But you can have a pretty good stab at uh, giving some, running some models and giving an idea on certain assumptions. This is how it's likely to turn out. And then the final S in C's is strategic notice, which is slightly different. And this is watching out that you don't get blindsided because you've been so focused on this one decision that you don't get hit on the back of the head with something entirely different or some development that you hadn't anticipated. And, you know, we talk about COVID. It is extremely serious. But there are other things which can come and hit us. And we should be thinking about what kind of preparation should we make as a nation, what kind of investment what kind of research should be conducted so that when it happens, we're not so surprised by surprise itself, uh, which is one of my other intelligence lessons, that if you invest in strategic notice, then you stand a good chance of being able to uh, better deal with whatever comes and hits you because you've made preparations. The homely example of that is insurance. You know, you insure your car. Um, you hope you're not going to be in an accident, but you have strategic notice that there are some lunatics driving around the roads rather badly, particularly at the moment with COVID. It seems to have worsened our driving habits. <laughs> uh, and if you're in a, that kind of crash, you will be very glad you have insurance. And you certainly need a minimum of insurance to be legally uh, to safe. Um so that's a sort of homely example. But the example I put in the book, uh, I don't know if you remember the event, when the Icelandic volcano with the unpronounceable name blew its top and the whole of Europe's air, was the atmosphere, was filled with this fine ash and nobody knew what was safe for a jetliner to fly through. So the air traffic authorities wisely applied the precautionary principle and shut everything down. And if you shut down European aviation, they discovered, you shut down most of global aviation because of the number of flights that go over Europe. So nobody was allowed to fly. And for a week, there was complete chaos. People were grounded, school parties couldn't get back home for the start of the term. There were people dumped in airports. Uh, when planes landed at emergency landings, um, who didn't have visas for those countries and therefore weren't allowed to leave the airport, you know, for days. I mean, it was chaotic. And we now know that the Icelandic authorities had been asked it pleading, saying, here's strategic notice. We don't know when, but one of these volcanoes will blow its top. Yeah. Why don't you do the research now as to so, in, in fact, the, the uh, uh, aircraft engine manufacturers flew some flights. They discovered it was safe. Aviation reopened. But that was about a million pounds, a billion, 
billion pounds worth of cost and a week of utter misery for passengers, which could have been avoided by taking note heed of strategic notice. And there are lots of other things out there that we ought to be thinking about, not least because of global warming. For sure. There was also a report early on in the COVID crisis about how the NHS were trying to do pandemic modelling and drills, and that had been cut back a couple of years ago. And so, again, there's, I mean, I don't know what that would have looked like, but maybe it would have resulted in better preparedness. I don't know. Well, when I was in the Cabinet Office doing the uh, security and intelligence coordination job, we published risk registers, and they're still published. You can get them on the web. And the uh, top right-hand corner of the 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 uh, graph that shows likelihood of trouble and impact if it happens was always a pandemic. But I suspect austerity after 2007, 2008, we had unfortunately a squeeze. Public Health England was obviously uh, really squeezed for resources. Stockpiles were run down and we entered the current pandemic not very well prepared, it appears, or as well. I don't want to denigrate the efforts that were put in. I mean, the Nightingale hospitals being built in record time, and that's a remarkable achievement. And the hospitals put in their emergency plans. But across the country as a whole, we weren't really, it seems to me, quite as prepared as we should have been, given that some form of pandemic, you couldn't predict exactly the characteristics of COVID-19. It was a new disease. But some form of pandemic, therefore, stocks of PPE, arrangements to expand uh, track and trace, uh, test and trace, and so on locally. All of those could have been in place. But we'll have to wait for an inquiry, no doubt, some point in the future. We'll learn lessons. Absolutely. Um, So the book is just full of these fascinating stories and examples that you give from your career and i mean i i I loved reading it as someone who's who's somewhat of a of a politics geek as well as being someone who loves thinking about how you take ideas and examples from one part of the world and apply it in another another part of our economy or whatever um was there a sense that writing the book for you was you know almost like an autobiographical thing too right so there's a lot of stories that you know, was there a sense of, I really ought to write these things down because <laughs> you've been kind of at, you've, you've been a fly on the wall, you've been in the room and, and been part of some very big decisions that have affected the life of the country. So just wondering if that was part of the, the reasoning behind writing the book. No, um, al- almost the opposite. Okay. <laughs> in that, you know, I started um, with some... Uh, uh, ideas I wanted to push out, particularly about what's going on with fake news and mm-hmm. <laughs> social yeah. media and so on. And that which led me to think about, you know, the, the analytic process. How do you know what you need to know before you take a decision? Which led me into thinking about the seas. That's one way of breaking up the subject, um, which I think is quite useful. Um, and then came the thought, well, I'd better illustrate this uh, rather than just make it a book of uh, uh, the- you know, decision theory of the sort you get in management uh, textbooks at airports. <laughs> I'd better actually try and illustrate and make it come alive. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, I've actually got plenty of examples from my own 
time that I can use with some degree of authenticity. But some of the examples I put in are purely historical, and I was a babe in arms when, uh, mm-hmm. when those events took place. But you do talk about, you know, the the bit at the beginning of the book where you're working for John Knott and you go into, you kind of go into Margaret Thatcher's office when she's doing something else and have to interrupt the prime minister to say, hey, we have new intelligence about the Argentines uh, wanting to claim the claim the Falklands and we're about to go to war. You know, you, you like you're right there in that moment. It's a huge um, thing. And the, and the, the other one that really struck me was the thing about um, Jack Straw during your time at the Home Office and the, the pressure that he was under around the passport um, issue that arose where basically everyone was panicked about um, about renewing their passports. And of course, it, it's a bit like what we saw with the stockpiling on the shelves, as you point out in, in COVID, where once people get wind that there might be a, a delay in passports, everyone puts their application in more quickly. So you've been at some of those moments where there's been huge pressure on individuals. So yeah, were there, are there any others that, because you wrote the book that way around, you didn't mention in the book, but might be worth... Um, telling the tale here in terms of just being at some of those important I'm moments. I'm not going to tell you. If I have any such, I'll save them up for the next book. Save them up for the next book. <laughs> but no, you, uh, a career such as the one I've had in, in the sort of defense world and uh, security and intelligence world, um, you're privileged to be, you know, part of uh, major events, albeit sometimes as a fairly junior spectator early in my career, but nonetheless, you're there. I mean, I genuinely will not forget that uh, afternoon in the House of Commons on the 31st of March, 1982, uh, working with John Lott on a speech on something entirely different. It was the British acquisition of Trident D5 missiles for our nuclear deterrent and working away on a, how to explain this in the his speech to the House of Commons, and this runner arrives, you know, from Whitehall with a locked pouch containing GCHQ intercepts. And the moment he took them out of the pouch, I knew what they were because I'd worked, it started my career down there, and I knew how to read these things. And what they showed without any shadow of doubt, really, was that the Argentine junta had set up an invasion fleet to see um, that by the end of the week they were going to be at the Falklands, at Port Stanley, the capital of the Falklands, that they'd had a submarine conducting a covert reconnaissance of the beach. So all the signals pointed, and uh, John and I just looked at each other and sort of said, yeah, we better find the Prime Minister, because we knew this is going to rock. The, the, the government, quite apart from the loss of the Falkland Islands themselves, the this would put in serious jeopardy the continuation of the government because of the reaction. And uh, uh, so we rushed down the corridor and we burst in on her and we showed her the, uh, the intercepts. And I, I recount this in the book. Uh, her first reaction was actually to uh, ring President Reagan and get him to ring the junta and say, don't be so silly, call this off. Because only Reagan, the American power, could persuade this junta to stop. We didn't have the force in the South Atlantic that could stop them. There was nothing we could yeah. do. Uh, it's too far away. 
Um, and uh, the junta refused to accept Reagan's telephone call. The White House kept ringing and they kept putting it off because they knew they would probably have their arm twisted behind their back and they would have to call it off. So it happened. But because of the GCHQ advance warning, albeit only of a few days, that enabled uh, the Prime Minister uh, to agree to the sending of a task force to the South Atlantic, which could be announced on the Saturday after, immediately after the invasion. So it looked positive. It looked like, yes, this is a terrible, terrible shame for the United Kingdom. They've, this junta, this uh, neo-fascist junta has invaded the Falkland Islands, British territory, but we're going to get them back. We're sending a task force. Uh, and without, if she'd just woken up to the news on the Today program, um, I think the reaction of her own backbenches would have been very severe, as it was. The, uh, Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary, was felt he really had to resign because he'd lost the confidence of his own backbenches. Um, and in some of those moments, what, what did you learn about pressure and how human beings react under really severe pressure like that? It's difficult to generalise. Um, you can, I think certainly if I was talking about officials, um, you could broadly put them into the category of those who really flinch, who really, it's not what they do. They don't like, they, so they kind of withdraw into themselves. And those who kind of expand and, you know, they're, underlying natural sort of human uh, talents come out very prominently. Um, so some people are good in that kind of crisis. Um, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to take good decisions, but they're on top of the situation. They know they have to show leadership. Yeah. And some people, it's just not what they do. They're, they're much better taking longer-term decisions, looking at all the evidence, weighing it up, uh, being very careful. And some in a crisis, sometimes you just have to act, and history will judge you. And if you act the wrong way, you'll get have a very bad time. But you've got to act, and it's not acting has a very heavy price. Again, there are COVID uh, lessons, no doubt, to be learned in future about that. Um, what was the moment that you felt most under pressure in your own career? Oh, goodness. Uh, it probably was, you know, uh, the pressure in, during the Falklands, the early part of the Falklands campaign was very intense. All our preparations, all our war planning and gaming and taking part in exercise had all been a NATO crisis. Um, with the United States as our principal ally, working together with our partners and German uh, uh, partners and so on. Whereas this was a national crisis and we hadn't really any experience uh, of dealing with something where we were complete to start with, completely on our own. Uh, and a lot had to be improvised, a lot had to be made up on the spot. Afterwards, looking back on it, of course, we discovered that there'd been so much innovation. Um, and uh, I sent out a minute uh, on the Secretary of State's behalf to the Ministry of Defence, basically saying winning the war comes first. 
you know, recording the details and counting the cost will come afterwards. So report what you've had to do and how much you've had to spend, but don't wait get on with it. And afterwards, when you know it was examined by the uh, internal auditors and so on, mostly we got better value of mo- for money because decisions were made more quickly. Um, I suppose we also have to talk about terrorism and Iraq and, and that part of your career too. So you were um, involved in, you, you, well, you wrote the, uh, the contest strategy, which has become the strategy for counterterrorism, still in use today. Yes, Right, 20 or so years later. Um, I started that this in about September, October 2002 when I took up office. This was a new post that that was created that I took over as security intelligence coordinator. So we started work on it and eventually I presented it to the cabinet and they accepted it. Um, And the contest strategy had a very, there's a lot of discussion about what as a nation are we trying to achieve here? What is the strategic goal of having a counterterrorism strategy? I mean, it was obviously reducing the risk from terrorism, but by how much? Um, And we came up with this formulation to reduce the risk from uh, terrorism uh, so that people can go about their normal business freely and with confidence. You know, it's so you're not setting out to say uh, we're going to destroy Al Qaeda. Um, we're not setting out to say we will have zero risk of terrorism because you probably wouldn't live want to live in a society with that level of surveillance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're saying what the the key test is to deny the terrorists what they're most seeking. They want to put us in fear. They want to put the public in fear. So the public will put pressure on governments, withdraw from the Middle East, for example. Uh, if normal life is continuing, we're winning and they're losing by definition. So can you keep normal life going? Uh, and then we added those two riders freely and with confidence, freely meaning you haven't succeeded if you brought the terrorist risk down, but you've had to sacrifice our freedoms and liberties in the process. And with confidence, meaning, you know, do public, do, does the public feel confident? Do they use the London Underground? Do they get up in the morning, use public transport? Uh, do foreign visitors arrive? Do people use uh, uh, civilian airliners? Uh, is the inward investment in the country. And so these are all indicators that we are prevailing as a normal society. Then you have the disturbance of a real event, a terrorist event. And how quickly can you bounce back into that state of normality? Uh, And then we had to operationalize that aim. So we turned it into four programs, the famous uh, uh, pursue and uh, uh, prevent and protect and prepare, where you could have lists of things that government could do, local government could do, the charitable sector could do, everyone had a part to play. And in that way, you sort of push the, uh, it along. It was very different from the United States objective, which was to destroy Al-Qaeda by any means. Uh, and the this idea of 
for example, when you come to protect uh, against uh, terrorist uh, attack, can you do so in ways that don't put the public in fear? So the less barbed wire, armed police officers, uh, you know, barriers, all the rest of it. And we came up with this secured by design. So if you look at new buildings in London, they are all much more secure against a terrorist bomb, for example, than previous generations. But the details you don't need to know about. It's just it's something that is that that is happening and where the cars get parked underground and that sort of thing. And even some of those bollards that you see visibly, they're still, relatively speaking, quite unobtrusive, right? So normal life is going on around a lot of the things that are... There's a big contrast there between the bollards around Parliament... Yeah. which are still very temporary because they haven't agreed on what the permanent solution should look like with the rebuilding of Parliament or the tidying up of, of, of Parliament. But if you look along, say, Whitehall, there are balustrades that are along. They, look, they fit in. Uh, the public doesn't need to know, as it were, that uh, the reason for that is it will prevent a, you know, a vehicle bomb from getting too close to a building. The American embassy south of the river uh, is a classic example because they've put a moat around the embassy and it looks nice. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of scenic. It's yeah. landscaped. But I wouldn't want to try, try and drive a truck bomb into it because you'd go straight down to the bottom. Um, you, a couple of things I want to talk about before we finish. And yeah, I do want to get on and talk about um, some of the contemporary issues around information and disinformation and so on. Um, just before we leave the terrorism and um, that that sort of phase around sort of post 9-11. So you gave evidence to the Iraq inquiry and you talk in the book quite a lot about the, how the SEAS model applies to Iraq and some of the things that, um, some of the big issues, you know, around getting the right kind of intelligence for Iraq. What What's your reflection looking back on that period now in terms of how the intelligence services um, dealt with all the, the issues around Iraq? I think it falls into three three buckets. One, situational awareness. We now know that some of the uh, evidence, some of the intelligence reporting was very flaky, um, which we didn't know at the time. And some of it on biological warfare was actually a fabrication which was fed into the American system, and from there it got into the British system from uh, an Iraqi defector in Germany. And the German service uh, debriefed him, produced all these reports about mobile biological warfare trailers and, and so on, which Colin Powell used in his presentation to the United Nations to justify the war. And it, after the war, the journalist tracked this guy down, and he said, I made it up. Um, he was an, a chemical engineer. He had worked on biological warfare programs when Saddam had them. So he had all the technical knowledge to say this is still continuing. Uh, and that led the intelligence community quite seriously astray. So there was situational awareness problems. There were also explanation problems in that uh, quite a lot of what was seen was written off as this is Saddam's deception program. Uh, and including when he maintained, of course, that he'd given up these programs. They said, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, 
and there was quite a lot of over-interpretation of what evidence there was. So those two problems sort of interacted with each other and meant that the Joint Intelligence Committee assessments towards the end of 2002 had really were in you know, some serious error, which is, was pointed out by the inquiries that took place. Up to about the middle of 2002, they were pretty good, actually. Uh, but they got hardened up as some of this evidence, so-called evidence, came in. And then the third issue was, how do you explain all that to the public? And that's where perhaps the uh, this wasn't really the... Uh, this is the, the dossier that was produced and so on, where more care should have been taken and we should have spotted that we should have made much more of the rule number one of intelligence, the lesson of intelligence, you know, is fragmentary, it's incomplete and it's sometimes wrong. And the way it was presented was with a certainty which really was probably more than it, it should have should have been ascribed to it. Do you feel like those lessons have been learned or do you oh, feel yes. like it's, yeah. it's actually quite a long time ago now as well, isn't it? So do you like how does that how do those lessons stay learnt rather than fading into well, the you background? Have to keep refreshing them. Uh there's a college of intelligence analysis. Uh, so the young analysts get trained and they get talked to by people like me and you kind of try and uh, keep these lessons alive. But different mistakes will be made. Probably not those ones, but there are always things you have to learn. And I guess that's just the nature of the job as well, right? Um, let's finish that. I really wanted to talk to you about the disinformation stuff. And maybe what I'll do is I'll do a little spiel at the end of the podcast. Yes. Do you want to just tell people where they can buy the book? It uh, looks like you have somewhere you need to run to. Well, the book will be out on the 29th of October. It's uh, all the usual outlets, both real bookshops and, of course, Amazon and uh, uh, and so on. And there's a digital version. And I actually took the trouble to read the whole book. So there's an audio version which you can also get hold of. And I suppose I conclude by saying it's the book is a call to arms in favour of rational analysis to support decision-making. And it's a warning, you know, be very careful on social media not to spread further false reports and false news. And be careful about deception because there's quite a lot of it around. Absolutely. And where are you being called off to now? What's uh, what's the rest of your day looking like? Oh, it's yet more. Uh, it's a lecture I have to give, in fact, to an audience in the United States. Okay. University. <laughs> well, I hope it goes well. So, um, um, just a real pleasure having you on the podcast. And um, the, the book's fantastic. So congratulations on it. And um, thanks for being on Beyond Busy. Great. Thanks very much, Graham. So as you heard there at the end, David was pulled away to uh, get ready for another engagement um, at a quite sort of short notice. And it was a surprise to both of us. And there was like about five minutes of stuff that I wanted to talk about from his book, which I really loved. And um, it was the final bit I was going to ask him about at the end, because it really sort of wrapped it all up. And we just kind of didn't get around to it because of that. So I just want to say a couple of things really quickly. The end of David's book is fascinating and talks about disinformation and what that means for democracy. 
and it paints some pictures of future elections in the UK, uh, in the US, and some of the possible scenarios where people are duped into voting for one particular party or another based on things like deep fakes, based on disinformation, stuff that just is palpably untrue. And, you know, once everyone puts their cross in the ballot box, then it's too late, right? So yeah, you might have been duped by something, you know, on a Wednesday. But if you voted on the Thursday, it doesn't matter if you find out by the Saturday that it was all fake and wrong. Um, it's too late. You've made your choice. You know, that's how democracy works. So it feels like we've got this 24-hour, very dynamic media culture that is capable of all kinds of things, including uh, being manipulated from all kinds of different angles. Russia, obviously being a really obvious one, but so many different places can manipulate information. And at the same time, we have an electoral system, which is really still quite Victorian, you know, in terms of walking into a ballot box and picking up a pencil and writing your, you know, writing a cross against the person that you want to vote for. And so it kind of feels like um, that is a little bit of a weakness, the fact that our uh, voting systems are so uh, driven by it being, you know, basically one day every four or five years decides the direction of the country. Um, so I just think there's something really important at stake here. And well, there's something fundamental at stake here. And one of the things that I think we need to really think more about and push out is the idea of critical thinking. I think this has been something that through the COVID period has really come to light. Um, you would have thought that a pandemic would be the event that shut up the anti-vaxxer movement forever. Uh, and actually early on in the pandemic, I remember seeing someone saying, anti-vaxxers getting a brief glimpse of a vaccine-free world. And I thought, yeah, I mean, this should be the end to that argument, right? And actually, of course, we all know it's done the opposite. So I think there's definitely, you know, there's the, we definitely need to really think about how people view objective truth. We really need to establish um, some trusted mechanisms around a shared uh, a, a shared view of what truth is or what truths are. And I think critical thinking is something that we really need to engage with as a skill and as a topic much, much more. Over the years, I've always been really annoyed as someone who did media studies A-level at hearing politicians, actually of all you know shapes and sizes, but particularly conservative politicians, really disparaging the topic of media studies and calling it a Mickey Mouse A-level and things like that. And my theory is that people feel quite threatened by media studies. And it's the same reason why people tend to do down the humanities and particularly history is because those are the subjects, you know, history and media studies really are the two academic subjects that really teach us some of these critical thinking skills and to really analyse why is a certain organisation behind um, a certain point of view. Why is that newspaper pushing that particular narrative? Why do those people care that, that that's uh, the, the control of the narrative? And so I think we really need to get much more savvy around this. And I'm quite lucky in that there's only a couple of people that I've come across in my own networks who are falling for these kind of very silly conspiracy theories. Um, and I think it's the duty of all of us when you see that, not to just take the easy option of saying, okay, that person was from my school. I quite like them, but I'm going to block them. It's, 
you know, it's really important to try and engage in those conversations and, and really, you know, lay out a bit of a challenge. Um, I actually had a situation a little while ago where I said, really, I mean, I agree with you about 90% of what you're saying, but that part of what you're saying is ridiculous. And the reason I was doing that was to really just quash, um, any, uh, influence of those kind of conspiracy theories and just to make the point that, okay, so even if I'm on your side, even if I agree with you about so many things that the government is doing wrong, then, you know, actually that is something that, uh, we just have to say is just palpably untrue. Even if you might want it to be true emotionally, it's untrue. So I think that it's just really important for us to have those conversations. And, um, I think it's all of our duties to protect the idea of objective truth, um, and of course, the idea of, of free speech so that we can really dissect the ideas. I think if we lose that, we lose so much. And um, I thought that was just really well put at the end of, of David's book and um, the way he plays out those different scenarios and, um, you know, different sort of media uh, influence and, you know, the the sense that media really has so much power uh, to, to influence behaviour, particularly when we don't have... Uh, such strong uh, sort of objective institutions anymore. You know, people don't use the BBC anymore and say what you like about the BBC, but they do have things like the newspaper review. Well, they'll show you both sides of the argument and, you know, they will have the fact check kind of stuff that goes on on, on the BBC website and, and, you know, looking at the particular evidence and facts behind particular political speeches and things like that. And I think that's really, really important. There's a whole load of websites, you know, websites like Snopes that we're, that we're all aware of that will help to put evidence in front of us. But I think we really need to defend the idea of objective truth and, um, you know, really uh, help people to think critically. And I think as we go through the next couple of decades, if we don't have that as a fundamental part of the education system, we're going to be in real trouble. So it's a, it's a lot at stake. And I, I just thought it was a point really well made uh, in, in David's book and one that I really wanted to wrap up and uh, make on his behalf because we went out of time. So that is that. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to say before we finish is that we, uh, we talked before about the fact that my uh, book with Colette Hennigan is on pre-order um, so if you want to go to amazon.co.uk and thank us for this podcast, you can do so by buying, uh, a or multiple copies of how to have the energy. So go and do that at amazon.com. And next week we actually have Colette on the show. So we're going to be talking about how to have the energy. We're going to be talking about nutrition, how to eat well, to have good energy for your work, um, how to have a really healthy lifestyle full of vitality and, uh, and just full of energy. So uh, that's coming up next week with Colette. As always, thanks to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show. Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. And you can find show notes and all the previous episodes at getbeyondbusy.com. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye for now.